So tonight I want to talk about heaven, like I said, but I want to talk about it maybe a little bit different than you think. When Billy Graham was 97 years old, he wrote a book called Where I Am, Heaven, Eternity, and Life Beyond. And in that book, he seemed to uh, lament that he had to continue on earth for, for however long he was going to be here in that ripe old age where he was, because he kept saying he wanted to die and go on to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus. And honestly, that's just about how every Western Christian you know, thinks, about, uh, thinks about death and thinks about heaven. It's what they hope for. It's what they long for. Uh, and this is the focus of just about all of our preaching. It's been the focus of my preaching for many, many years is that we're going to die and, and we're going to go to heaven and we're going to enjoy conscious bliss. And that seems to be, I mean, in our mind anyway, that seems to be, it's not just that we're going there for a little while, but that's where we're going. That's what it's all about. And uh, so this even Tuesday morning at the men's breakfast, we sing a song. We sing a hymn every morning, every Tuesday morning. And uh, we picked Victory in Jesus, okay? And the last stanza of Victory in Jesus goes like this. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. And the angels singing in the old redemption story. And some sweet day, I'll sing up there the song of victory. So that's, that's the, the verse. And I, I tell you, I had to smile in light of some of the things that uh, I'm going to be saying tonight. But, but that song represents really most Western Christians' goal in life. I, I want to go to heaven and, and walk the streets of goal where God is and, and, and be with God and Jesus up there and see my family and see grandmother and just be with my loved ones and all of that. So that's kind of the goal. But what I hope to do tonight, and here's my, here's my, this is my theme, this is my thesis for tonight. My, my goal tonight is to show you that that is not... That is not what the Scripture puts forward as our goal or our hope. That, that's not what the Scripture puts its focus on. That's what our focus is. But that's not the focus that the Scripture has. And, um, and that's not the focus that the New Testament Christians had. It wasn't their hope, and it wasn't what they longed for. Please don't misunderstand. We, we all want to be with God, right? And so I'm not trying to say that our goal and desire isn't to be with God. What I want to show you, what I want to show you in the Scripture is, is that I don't believe that really was the focus of the early Christians. And rather, what their focus was, their focus was on the resurrection from the dead. More specifically, their resurrection from the dead and the ensuing establishment of the kingdom of God on a renewed earth. As opposed to, and, and so let me just say it, and, 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 and you're going to say, well, yeah, yeah, that's what I think. That might be what you think, but that's not how we that's not really how we behave. It's not really what we talk about. Our focus is going up there to heaven to be with God on streets of gold and all of that, where the focus of the New Testament is not about going up there and being with God. The focus of the New Testament is that God is going to resurrect me from the dead, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, and I am going to be a part of that kingdom on earth. So, in other words, the, the goal the goal that the New Testament points us to, the hope that the New Testament points us to, is to a new heavens and a new earth. So we're, our first text is going to be Revelation 21, because I want to start with, by talking about, about what is the new heaven and earth. When we talk about that, what are we talking about? 
And so Revelation 21, when we get to Revelation 21, it's the last book of the Bible, last two chapters of the Bible, God, God tells us about what he's got planned for the future. And so in Revelation 21, verse 1, God says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So when we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, we're really talking about what God promises in the future, that he is going to create, just like he says, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the present earth and the present heavens are going to pass away. We read that in verse 1. He says, For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Now, some people say that God is going to absolutely, utterly destroy the present universe, that he's going to roll it all up. You know, the lake of fire, the lake of fire and the destruction of all things is going to be somehow God rolling up the universe and in, in, in a big fire and just burning it all up. Um, but I, I don't believe, I, I used to think that, I, I think I used to lean that way, but the more I've read and the more I've studied, the, the more I believe that God is, is going to destroy the present heavens and earth with fire. But I, I really think what he means is just like he destroyed the earth with a flood and then started with the earth that was here and rebuilt it in the same way, I believe he's going to destroy the present earth with fire, but then it's going to be all restored. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter talks about this as well. 2 Peter 3, 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, so when we speak of the new heavens and the new earth, we're, we're referencing what the Bible talks about. Both Peter and John speak of it. They talk about this world being destroyed and God recreating it. Now, he could recreate it from scratch and destroy absolutely everything and it all be new, or he could simply destroy it in the sense as he destroyed the world with, with, with the flood early on in Noah's days. He's going to do that with fire and then recreate what, what exists here. I tend to lean to that one, but, but that's what we're talking about. The second thing I want you to note from the Revelation passage is that, and, and I want to mention this because it always bothered me, in the new earth it says there will not be a sea. Do you see that in 21 verse, uh, verse 1? Uh, the second part of verse 1, it says, And there is no longer any sea. And I love the ocean. And, and it just, boy, it just makes me kind of sad to think that there wouldn't be an ocean on, on God's world. But again, one of the things I want to remind us is the book of Revelation is extremely, it's apocalyptic. And apocalyptic means what? It's a kind of literature. And it's a kind of literature that has a lot of visions and symbols that mean things, right? Again, this, this is not so much a picture, I guess, as John just talking, or the angel talking to John. 
But, uh, but here's one thing to remember. I read this, and I thought this was very, very uh, interesting and very insightful. When John wrote this, he's on the island of Patmos, and he is surrounded by oceans. And he, he, cannot, he cannot leave. That's his prison because he's on this island. And, and so when John is writing this, for John and for those people of that day, the sea was a painful barrier between people. It separated people. Uh, ancient people, they were afraid of the ocean. They were afraid of monsters. They were afraid of dying in the ocean. If there were clouds or rainy day, you, if you couldn't see the stars, you didn't have any navigation uh, on the ocean back in, in Palestinian days when John is writing. I mean, the ocean was a fearful thing. It was a separator of people, so it could be that when John says there'll be no more sea on the new world, basically what John could have been saying is there'll be no more, there'll be no more separation of peoples on the new world. In other words, maybe it's not literally, I'm going to hope this anyway, that there's not literally going to be an ocean, not literally not going to be an ocean, but there won't be barriers like there were in John's day. I think that's a possibility, but he says in the, in the new heavens, new earth, there won't be any sea. Again, I wouldn't think that would mean that there, wouldn't, there couldn't be lakes or, or rivers and all that. There's rivers. We know there are rivers, right? So there, there could be lakes and all that kind of thing. That was just a side point. Number three, in, in the world that uh, has now been made ready, God says that he's going to join his Jerusalem to this new earth, right? So again, I get the picture, everybody. Our picture is what? We're going up there, right? The picture that Revelation paints is that God is coming down here, that his kingdom, that his new Jerusalem is going to join us on this earth. And it says it in two or three times, and God himself will be among us. And God himself is going to live among us. That reminds me, I hope it reminds you as well, but that reminds me of the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and it says over and over again that God walked with them in the cool of the evening. Now, however God walked with them, I mean, God didn't have a body like ours, but one of the things that, that I'm reminded of, and I want to remind you of, and the New Testament Christians understood this, God has now joined himself to our creatureliness. All right? He's now joined himself to our humanity. So he's taken on, he's become the God-man. He's fully God. He's fully man. But, but he's taken on our humanity. And here's one thing that back in the fall when we, did our, um, when we did our theology study that I didn't realize, but the church over the centuries has said Jesus is never going to, never going to, extricate himself from his humanity. In other words, he became the God-man forever. I mean, it wasn't like Jesus kind of jumped into humanity for a little while. No, Jesus took on our humanness then, and now he's been transformed into his new resurrected body, but it's not anything that he's going to leave. And so what that means is that in, in this new world where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and joins us and God is in our midst, God the Son is going to represent or be God among us. And so, I mean, this is kind of exciting when you think about it, and I'm sure all these early Christians, this was, this was part of their thinking, was that, that Jesus is going to be here with us, we're going to be resurrected, and we're going to be able to see him and touch him and talk to him just like we do in a relationship. You know, David and I got to talk on Tuesday, face-to-face, -face, sitting in two chairs, talking to each other, right? 
well, you know what? In, 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 in God's new heaven and new earth, when the new Jerusalem comes, we're going to get to sit and talk with Jesus just like we're talking now. It's not going to be an ethereal thing. And again, I'm not trying to minimize our relationship with Jesus now. It's very real. But would, would any of you not say that you would absolutely love to sit down face to face with Jesus and, and see him and talk to him like we talk now in our physicalness? I, I think all of us would love to see that. In fact, one of the, either Jesus or one of the disciples talked about how the disciples of Jesus' day got to see what men have longed to see for generations. They were able to experience that. And you remember when John wrote his letter, 1 John, he says, we tell you what we saw, what we touched, what we experienced, right? Because they got to be the ones that were touching Jesus. And, but, but here's the neat thing about what God says about the new heavens and the new earth is that we will be resurrected. We'll have bodies that are like unto this one, but so much better. I mean, they'll be There'll be immortal bodies, and there'll be uh, a renewed body. I, I, don't know, I don't know all that God has in store in, in the glorified bodies that we'll have, but we're going to have them, and we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to touch him like Thomas did and, and like all the other disciples did. Number four, and in this new world, there won't be any more death, only life, okay? Eternal, immortal life that never ends. No more sorrow, no more suffering, uh, hard to imagine such a world, but that's the promise of God. I don't know if y'all think about it, but I, I know I do. I, I try to think, what would, what would life be like if there was no more sin? What would, the li- what would life be like if there was no more corruption and no more brokenness in our world? How, how would it be different? And h- however, however that is, however that is, that is what the new world that God's creating, this new world that's that's like this. I mean, it's a new physical world. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be a return to the Garden of Eden. Verse 4, he says, And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm still in Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 5. Okay? But the Old Testament points to this as well. So in the Old Testament, we have Isaiah 65. And beginning in verse 17, Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before the revelation, says, For behold, God speaking, I create new, new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer, there will no longer be heard in her a voice of weeping and the sound, uh, and the sound of crying." And then there's a passage in there. It's a little bit hard. I'm going to kind of skip it, but I'm going to go to verse 21. They will build houses and inhabitate them. They will also plant vineyards and eat the fruit, and they will not build and, and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out all the work of their hands. 
They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. And they are uh, the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. And they will know, there will be no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. So the picture that Isaiah painted in the Old Testament is so similar to the one in Revelation, that there's going to be this absolute new world with no sin, no failure, no flaw, no wickedness, no evil, no anything that we associate with sin and, and, uh, and, and rebellion against God. And Isaiah also said that the new heaven and earth, just like God said it, is going to last forever. So in chapter 66, the very next chapter, verse 22, Isaiah says this, For just as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. So the, the new heavens and the new earth were to last forever, and the people on them were to be immortal, and they were not going to die. So the hope of the New Testament Christian wasn't on dying and going to heaven, and again, I mean, that may be what happens when we die, okay? But that, here's what I want you to see. That is not their hope. That's not what they're looking for. That's not what they focus their attention on. Their attention is focused on God coming back here and restoring this world and them being a part of it, raised in immortality to live face-to-face -face with God. That was their hope. That was their focus, According to New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I quote, the traditional picture of people going to either heaven or hell as a one-stage post-mortem journey represents a serious distortion and diminution, diminution of the Christian hope. Bodily resurrection is not just one odd bit of that hope. It is the element that gives shape and meaning to the rest of the story of God's ultimate purposes. If we squeeze it to the margins... Uh, as, as many have done by implication, or indeed, if we leave it out altogether, as some have done quite explicitly, we don't just lose an extra feature like buying a car that happens not to have electrically operated mirrors. We lose the central engine, which drives and gives every other component its reason for working. In other words, he says, you know, if, if we don't, if the resurrection, our resurrection... And, and this focus on the new earth, if it, if it somehow, if we marginalize it and make it something over to the side, he said, we're, we're really getting rid of what drove everything in the New Testament. Everybody follow that? Okay. So what I would like to do the rest of the time is I just, I want us to look at scriptures and I want you to see, and again, again, I just want you to, I'm not trying to deny that when we die, we go to heaven. I'm not trying to deny that, okay? What I'm trying to say is that when we read Scripture, that's what we see. But I'm telling you, that's not the focus of what the New Testament... I don't think that's what the focus of the New Testament writers is. So let's start. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through verse 25. I'm just going to read all of these. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is Paul writing, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, all are, we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Now what are we groaning within ourselves for? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And what is our adoption as sons? The redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes from what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now this passage is so loaded, but let me just point out some things. Our sin affected creation as well as ourselves. And again, he says, how did that happen? He says, because God did it. God somehow subjected all of creation to the fall of man. And, and we see that, I think. So in the new heavens and the new earth, are there going to be hurricanes that destroy and kill people and destroy and demolish villages and cities and homes? Are there going to be tornadoes that rip people's homes apart? No. But somehow or another, you know, creation has been subjected, subjected to futility, not because it wanted to be, but because God did, looking for the day when he redeems the creation as well as us. And so when he, create, when he redeems us, he's redeeming creation. Again, that's a reference to the new, to the new heavens and the new earth. But, but the thing that I want you to notice in Paul's writing here is he says that we're eagerly, we're groaning within ourselves, and we want this thing. But what is it that we want? It's not that we want heaven. It's not that we want streets of gold up there somewhere. He says what we want is we want adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We want, to be, we want our bodies restored. We want our bodies made whole. We want the new resurrected body that Jesus, that Jesus has. That is what Paul says we eagerly wait for. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through verse 21 now, you may not agree with my interpretations of these verses, and that's fine, but I still want to give it to you anyway, okay? Philippians 3, 20, 20, 20 21. Paul writing again, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity, into conformity the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, again, I, I want you to notice Paul's focus. Paul's focus is, you know, our citizenship is in heaven. Our allegiance is to a greater kingdom than a kingdom here on earth. Our, our allegiance is to the king who is in heaven. He ascended, left us. He's in heaven. We eagerly wait for our king from heaven to come to the earth. We're eagerly waiting for him. He will, and this is what he says, he will transform our bodies to his glorious state, right? Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity, into conformity, the body of his glory. In other words, we're eagerly waiting for our king to come to transform us and to make us like he is and give us the body that he has. And, and then, of course, he'll subject himself, everything will be subjected to him according to the passage. So, again, Paul's emphasis is yeah, our citizenship's up there, but we're waiting for our king to come here. And we're waiting for him to come here and subject all things to himself. And we're waiting for him to come here and to glorify our bodies even as his body is glorified. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, and again, I'm, I'm pointing these verses, even though you may say, well, they do talk about Christ being up in heaven. Verse 3, therefore, 
If we have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you who have died, your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now you could say, well, Jimmy, these, the first couple of verses there, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, really seem to be set your mind on things above, set your mind up there on heaven, right, rather than on things on the earth. And, and I think he is talking about set your mind on the king, set your mind on, uh, what am I trying to say? Set, set your mind on the will of God, set your mind on, on, our, on our king up there. But what I wanted you to notice is maybe this is, a, this is a verse with divided loyalties between up there and here. But you notice that at the end he says, but when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So our lives are hidden with Christ. We're in him. He's in us. He says, but when he's revealed, what's that talking about? It's talking about the second coming, right? It's talking about the time when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on earth. When Jesus comes, then you will be revealed with him. And again, so Paul's focus then is, as you go through this life, set your mind on things above. Maybe that is. Maybe that maybe is saying, set your mind on heaven, right? You know, but I, th- I don't think he's talking about heaven as a place. I think he's talking about set your mind on things that are eternal. Set your mind on, on the will of God and on who God is. And then when Christ comes, you'll be revealed with him. All right, Romans 8, 9 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, Paul says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And, and maybe, this is, maybe this is one of the clearer passages, I don't know, but Paul says that the Spirit of, of Jesus lives within us. And then he says that the spirit that raised Messiah, the spirit that raised Christ, is also going to give life to my mortal body. So Paul's focus isn't on life as a, as a disembodied spirit in heaven. His focus, on, again, is on the fact that God is going to give life to my mortal body. And of course, that you have to couple that with what the scripture continually points us to, which is the new heaven and the new earth. And so Paul says, man, God, the spirit of Christ that raised him is going to raise us, and he's going to give life to our mortal bodies. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know when he appears, we will be like him, because he will see, we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself Uh, just as he is pure. Now John declares that when Jesus appears, we're going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The resurrection body of Jesus is what he's alluding to there, and and though that's kind of unimaginable for us, or we can't really figure out exactly what, and I've said this already, what exactly Jesus' body can do and does do, right, in his glorified state, will we be able to do exactly what he did? I'm not sure. But, But notice this, notice what Paul says He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And and so 
We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself. Maybe he's not talking about when he appears, right? But verse 3 seems to say to me that, uh, that John is saying, keep your eyes focused, keep, keep your focus on the coming of Christ because that is what's going to purify you. In other words, keep remembering that Christ is coming. Y'all follow me? Now, maybe as I'm reading that, I'm saying, well, maybe he's just simply saying, keep your eyes set on Jesus up in heaven somewhere, and that purifies you. But the context seems to dictate we will know when, when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. Everyone who keeps his hope fixed on him purifies himself. Seems to be, John is saying, keep your eyes focused on the return of Christ because when he comes, then you're going to be made like him. John 5, 25 to 29, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me, he has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God, or Son of Man, excuse me. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This is Jesus telling his followers to have faith in him, right? And to have faith in him for eternal life. But then look at what he references to make the case. What he references to make the case that they have eternal life is their resurrection from the dead. That, that's, where, that's, the case. that's where he makes the case. He says, he says, hey, you, you have eternal life. Truly, truly, he who has my words and believes in me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Now listen to me. There's coming a time when men are going to hear my voice and they're going to rise from the dead. And so even Jesus' focus isn't on what happens to us when we die. His focus is on when we resurrect from the dead. And that seems to be the focus in all of these texts, in my estimation anyway, the resurrection from the dead, when, when we return to life. John 11, verse 21 through verse 27. Uh, this is Jesus and Martha. You know the story well. Lazarus has died. Martha runs out to meet him. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that what, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So I think she's kind of, that's kind of a hint, right? I think it is anyway. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So what I want to point out here is that Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will in the last day. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Though you die, you will live again. You will and if you die, and you will never die means you will never die forever, right? Because all of us are going to die. So if we have faith in him, we're not going to die forever. Again, the focus is, all the focus here is on resurrection from the dead, it's not on being with God in the intermediate state. The focus is resurrection. 
1 Corinthians 15. If there's one passage that majors, if there's one passage that majors on resurrection, this one would be it. You know, Paul says that our future resurrection, if our future resurrection isn't a reality, then everything crumbles. And we, we talked about this on Resurrection Sunday morning, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on some of that early text there. But remember, remember Paul's conclusion is we're, we're, we're most to be pitied, we're a liar, Jesus didn't even really rise again. If we, didn't, if we don't rise again, Jesus didn't rise again. And he has this big list of things. But then he says, but Jesus did rise again. I mean, he is risen. And because he is risen, then, then what we believe is not a lie. Because, what we, because he is risen, we're, we're, not, we're not believing in vain. We shouldn't be pitied. In fact, we should be envied because of our faith in God. Okay? Jesus' resurrection is true, and so is ours. But let me ask you a question. And here, I'm going to do a little bit of, I guess, back and forth and not just lecture. But let me ask you a question. Why would, why would they say this? Why would people say there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, I mean, in Jewish, in Jewish thought, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the righteous, and I mean, it's just a part of who they are. Remember, Martha says, I know he's going to rise in the, in, the, in the final resurrection. I know that, okay? So why would people say that nobody's going to rise again? Okay, very good, very good. You know, it, uh, it may surprise, you know, a lot of us, um, but, you know, many, many, uh, many Christians even today are not all that convinced in their own, of their own resurrection from the dead. Randy Alcorn, who did the, the uh, heaven study that we did a couple summers ago, he says that uh, two-thirds of Americans who claim to believe in the resurrection of Jesus when polled said they do not believe that they will rise again with the physical body in resurrection, but they will be a, a, a disembodied spirit, okay? Uh, N.T. Wright said, uh, and I quote, I've often heard people say, I'm going to heaven soon, and I won't need this stupid body there. Thank goodness. I've actually think, I think I've thought thoughts like that before, okay? So where, where did that come from back then and even now? Where does that, that mindset come from? Well, it came from Greek philosophy, not from biblical thinking, because the world in Jesus' day was heavily influenced by the Greek culture. In fact, the Greek, the Greek world had the Greek culture had dominated the world, and even when Rome overtook the Greek world, right, and became the world ruling empire, I mean, Greek philosophy and Greek thought, Hellenistic thought, still permeated the Roman world, right? And um, and the greatest Greek philosopher of all time was a fellow by the name of Plato, 427 B.C. And uh, he was actually considered one of the greatest philosophers of all times. Uh, he was born four centuries before Christ, and uh, yet his teaching really dominated much of the, of the Greek, Roman, Greco thought in Jesus' day. Now, Plato asserted that what we see around us in our physical world, and again, I've tried to understand Plato's thinking, and I guess I'm just not smart enough, but what he said, that what we see in our physical world, like trees and chairs and horses and plants and people, everything we see, everything we touch, everything we taste and smell, is actually not real, but it's a shadow of stuff in a, in a spiritual realm. Now, the materialist today, a materialist says all there is 
is the material world. There's no spiritual world out there. Plato would have been exactly the opposite. He would have said, all there is is a spiritual world out there, and all of this that we're experiencing is some sort of shadows of the spiritual realm. So not surprising, Plato's idea of heaven was for man to be free from his imperfect physical from this imperfect physical world, and more specifically, to be free from his body. Plato believed that man was a soul, and that man's soul is trapped in his body, much like we're trapped in a prison. And so to Plato, salvation occurs when the soul is set free from the body, from this prison. And the soul is then free to live in this spiritual realm with God. So now if you think about it for just a moment, and that's the, that's the Greco-Roman thought, that's the philosophy of the day, it wouldn't be hard for Christians, or, you know, people who are beginning to follow Christ, to say there is no resurrection. In other words, if, you, if you're still buying into this Greco-Roman philosophy, if this is what you've come out of, if this is your philosophical thinking, then, you know, there's no resurrection. That's what you've been taught. Why would you want a resurrection? Because resurrection is just, you know, it's material, it's physical, it's not even necessarily real, it's a shadow of, of the spiritual things. And so people were saying there's no resurrection because, kind of like Sue said a minute ago, in, in Greek thought, and, and even the Sadducees, who were very Hellenistic, the Sadducees denied all of, denied the, the resurrection from the dead and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and so because they had this idea that the material world was bad. One of the major, major, um, heresies of the early church was this thing called Gnosticism. And I can't even really describe all of what Gnostics believe, believe but I know one thing. They believed that the material world was bad, right? And, all, and anything material was evil and bad. And that's just, that's just so contrary to the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is that the things that God made that are material are good. When he created everything, he said he made this, and he said it's good. And he made this, and he said it's good. Then he made us, and he said it's really good. Did he say that, or did I just make that up? Um, you know, he, he basically said everything was good. So, you know, the, this idea that the material world is bad and that the spiritual world is good, that's, that's not biblical. What God made is good. And so... Because early Christians didn't have the Bible either. Yet. They, did, they did not have... They, they had the Old Testament... They did not have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. But one thing that they did not have, Sue, even in having the Old Testament, they did not have a copy, either electronically or hard copy. They did not have, you know, every family didn't have a copy of the Old Testament. And so they... they, they they, they went to the synagogue and they listened to it. And, and I'm not saying they did They probably listened better than us and they memorized better than us and all of that. But the truth is, they didn't have the Word of God like we have it. And so... You know, they had to listen to, uh, they had to, listen to the rabbi, and, and basically they believed what the rabbi taught. And by the way, side note here, one of the things that Nabil Qureshi said when we did the study on Islam, he said, you know, in Islam it's pretty much the same way. He said, most, most Muslims do not know what the Quran says. They don't understand it. They don't know it. They don't study it. All they know is what their imam has told them, Okay. And, you know, and I remember kind of chuckling to myself because, unfortunately, that represents way too many of us who follow Jesus, isn't it? We really don't know what the Bible says for ourselves. We, we just know what somebody's told us about the Bible instead of really trying to say. But we, have, we live in a, such a great day. We live in a day where we have the Bible. We can, actually, we can actually seek to understand it for ourselves. So when you think of their world and you think of their cultural influence, then, then, then Paul's argument really, I mean, it just really flies in the face of that. Let me read it. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26 or so. 
Um, but this is what he says. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a, by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So Paul, focus, his focus isn't on the spiritual realm, the disembodied existence of heavenly creatures. His, his, his focus is on this resurrection of, of, of believers and this, this resurrection where, where all of us are raised, raised in Christ. And that is his focus in, in 1 Corinthians 15 from beginning to end. No, not today. Verse 29. No, we'll, I'll leave that one up to you on another. <laughs> or let Doug talk about that one. I have, that's a hard verse for sure. All right, Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Yeah, but whatever things were gained to me, this is Paul writing to, Philippi, to the Philippian church, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So Paul just, this is, one of those, this is one of those incredible testimony passages where Paul just talks about, you know, how God took him to, to faith from leaving behind all his accolades and stuff like that. But, but, but what I want you to see is verse 11. He says, man, I want to know Christ. I want to know, the, I want to know his power in the resurrection. I want to know his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And again, I'm not saying that Paul's not thinking that maybe he's going to go to heaven in between. But what I want you to see is that's not what he says. He doesn't say, so that I may go to heaven when I die. So that I may be with God in heaven one day. That's not what he says. He says, so that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Again, his focus, his, what he's aiming at is the new heavens and the new earth and his being a part of it. All right, where, where do, we, do we, do we have any verses? Some of the verses that I read, as I read them, I thought, okay, some of these could, you, you could say some of these are pointing to the in-between heaven, okay? The in-between, the, the, the intermediate heaven. Some of those verses could. Um, but let's talk about a couple of verses that I think are really big ones that, that kind of point us maybe to uh, the intermediate heaven. One of them would be, well, you tell me, what are two verses that we look to when we talk about dying and going to heaven? What would two verses that come to mind? Are they up there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't, yeah, you're right, sorry. Yeah, John 14. I can't, I can't make y'all guess, can I? John 14, 1 through 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. 
For if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this is how we te technically read this. This is, how, this is how I've read it all my life. This is how you've read it, I imagine. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house up in heaven are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. So I'm going to go up to heaven to prepare a place for you. And if I go up to heaven to prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you. Uh, I'm going to come back to receive you to myself where I am so that we're, we can go back to heaven and where I am, then you can be there also. That's kind of how I've always read that. Is that not how we've all read it? Most of us anyway? Well, look. I got to tell you something, Steve. I, I just this this is just this actually just occurred to me the other day. Somebody made a comment is really funny because when they made the comment, it was like, "Wow, I can't believe this! Why did I never look at this this way?" And then I go home and Anne asked me a question on this very text with uh, with a statement about this. So so let's let's look. At, you know, could is this what Jesus is that what Jesus meant? Is that what Jesus meant? All right, so what I'd like to ask us to do, and, and by the way, this is where I heard about a mansion he's built for me in glory, you know, that, this is where that comes from, all right? So, um, but, but let's, let's step out of our 21st century mindset, and let's put ourselves back to be one of Jesus' disciples. There's no New Testament. They've never heard this before. There, there's, the, you know, the in, in the focus is on the kingdom of God. Remember, they're all thinking, they're not thinking heaven. They're not thinking heaven like we're thinking. They're thinking that Jesus, they're, they're still thinking Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem, right? That's how they're thinking. So when Jesus says, in my father's house are many dwelling places, has Jesus ever talked about his father's house? Actually, he has. Think about it. Yeah. This is my father's house, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. So if you're their disciple, if you're his disciples, I'm just getting chill bumps. And, 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 and he says, in my father's house are many dwellings. What do you think they're going to think? Put yourself in their mind. What are they going to think? They're going to think the temple, right? In my Father's temple are many dwelling places. Who dwelt in the temple? You know, some people actually dwelt in the temple. Do you know who they were? They were the priests. They were the ones who, who had this relationship with God like Levites, and they, could, they lived in the presence of God. By the way, what, what is so keen about the temple? It was the place where the presence of God dwelt, right? So think for just a moment. You know, maybe, maybe, what Jesus is saying is when he says, um, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, uh, I would have told you. Maybe he's saying, in my father's temple, there are many dwelling places. Dwelling places where you can be, okay? If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, in my father's temple, in my father's presence. So, if, that, if, if he's thinking that way, what does he mean when he says, I go to prepare a place for you? How, how would he prepare a place for us in God's presence? 
By dying on the cross, right? What, what if what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to go prepare a place for you by dying for you on the cross? What, what if his focus isn't about an ethereal heaven somewhere else that where he's going away to make a... Uh, what if he's talking about his, temp, his father's temple, his father's presence, and he's saying, in my father's presence, there's lots of places for people to be, and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And so if he were, if that's, if that would, what, if that is what he means and what he's talking about is what Sue said, I'm going to go and die for you. And then when he says, and I will come again to receive you to myself, he's talking about, he would be talking then about his second coming. Or he, would be ta- or he could even be talking about his resurrection from the dead when, when he goes into their presence and, you know, and, and he begins the church. He, you know, he, he sets the church in motion with Acts chapter 2. He could be actually referencing that. My point that I want you to see, there's a passage that we rely on really, really heavily to say, hey, this is, this is Jesus is talking about going up to heaven and preparing us a mansion up in heaven. Maybe that's not what Jesus meant at all. Everybody with me? What a shift in focus, right? It really, I tell you what, it really was a, because, because I thought, because I said to myself, where, if I'm his disciple and he says in my father's house, what am I going to think? Oh, he's talking about the temple. Because it must, he said in my father, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves, right? So their mind, they're not going to think like us. Well, actually, no. They thought that God's presence, God's he dwelt in the temple. The Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the temple, right? And so when the veil rent, it, you know, so I don't know. So maybe some of them did, but I just know that Jesus referred to, my, my point is just to make us think, just to make us think that maybe it's not like we've always thought this is how it ought to be, right? This, this is what this means. Maybe it's a little bit different. That's true. No, no, I'm not saying I'm not saying that yeah, God is that's true. He did say that, right? But also for the Jews, the presence of God dwelt in the temple also. So there's, you know. Anyway, just a little bit shift of focus and thinking there. All right, the second passage that I think is a really big one that that says, "Hey, it's it's all about us going to heaven." Would be 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. Okay, we we you know a lot of us have. So let me read it for us, okay? And so, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9, in Paul's writing, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed... While we are in the tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord... For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Well, really, verse 8 is the verse that we quote all the time at funerals. Uh, to be absent from the body 
is to be at home with the Lord. And we say, you know, Paul says, I prefer that. I prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home in heaven with the Lord. And that's how we read that. And that very well may be what he means. But let's walk back through the text and let's kind of just break it down as we walk through it, okay? So as you begin to walk through it, verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul starts off, and he, he contrasts, he says we're living in a tent now. It's a metaphor. We're living in a tent now, but when our tent is torn down, we've got a building from God. He's talking about our new immortal bodies, right? We're going to have a new body. That's, what he's, that's definitely what he's referencing at that point, right? And it's a new body, not made by us, but by God. He says, not made, what, what does he say? He says, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now think about it for just a moment. Um, you've been dead for however many years. Your body has, you know, you didn't get embalmed, and your body is decomposed, and your atoms have returned. You've been dust to dust, you know, you're, you're gone and, uh, you know, whether your consciousness is with God or not, but your body is gone. When God raises us from the dead, your body is not anything that man's going to have anything to do with. I mean, God's going to recreate, create your body. He's going to restore your body, restore your life, but he's going to create your body. And so that's what he's talking about here. He says, we're going to have this house that, that's not made, with, not made by human hands, but God's going to make it. Make it. It's eternal in the heavens. And then he says in verse 2, For indeed in this house we groan, long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We, we're in this body and we long to be clothed with that immortal body. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. So inasmuch as when we have this new body, we're not going to be found naked. What does he mean by naked there? He means bodiless, right? We're not, we're, not going to, we're, we're not going to be bodiless. That's what he means by naked, right? For indeed, while we are in this tent, and he goes back to the tent metaphor. You know, he's gone from, he went from tent, and then, and then verse 2, he says, For indeed, this house, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So now he changes the metaphor a little bit. Verse 4, he kind of goes back to the tent metaphor. In this tent we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. In other words, the, the life that Paul talks about in verse 5 is what? Verse 4, I'm sorry. What's the life there? This mortal will be swallowed up by life. Eternal life, your immortal body, right? He says, we, 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 in this body now, we groan, burdened, because we don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to be naked. We don't want to be bodiless, okay? We, we want to be clothed. We want to have our new body so that this mortal body will be swallowed up by an immortal body. We'll have immortal life, eternal life. Verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge that this is what he's going to do. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body now, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. I say, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Now, it, Paul very well could mean at home with the Lord in heaven and bodiless, right? The only, only, thing I, only thing I want you to consider in, his, in, this, in the progression of his thought is that twice he said, 
I don't want to be unclothed. I don't want to be unclothed. I don't want to be naked. And yet we get to this verse and we says, Paul says, I'd rather be naked. I'd rather be naked uh, than be in, in the body now. Now it could be, uh, it could be that that's what he's, that, no, he doesn't say, excuse me, excuse me, he doesn't say that he'd rather be naked. He says I'd, he'd rather be absent from this body and home with the Lord. Okay, that's what he says literally. He doesn't say, I'd rather be naked, which is what we think that he says, right? I'd rather be naked. So he could be referring to being naked in heaven without having a body, but he could also be, being, be absent from this body. It, the next thing, the, the immortal body is at home with the Lord. So he, you know, he could mean that as well. Y'all following what I'm saying there? Right, so... Right. If that is true, there could be a possibly be that we'd have a form that we could. We'll definitely be able to recognize one another, right? So, um, but my, my okay. But here's my point in this passage, right? Regardless of what Paul exactly means in verse in verse eight, because I think he could mean. Let me read it how I think he. I, this is how I actually think he probably means it. Okay. I'm going, to just, I'm going to put my own words in there to kind of flesh it out to what I think he means. We're of good courage. I say I prefer rather to be absent from this body and to be at home with the Lord with my immortal body. I think that's what he means. But he could mean, you know, I'd rather be absent from this body and to be at home without a body in heaven with the Lord. That could be what he means, okay? Uh, but, but, here, but here's what I want you to see. Twice in this passage, he said, not that I want that, not that I want that, not that I want that. So we're all, our focus as Western Christians is that's what we want. We want to be disembodied in heaven with God. We want to be with God in heaven because that's, you know, but that is not what these New Testament Christians were focused on. It's not what they were looking for. That may be a part of us, that we may have this intermediate state of bodilessness in heaven with the Lord, but that's not what they were all longing for. Okay, so here's my concluding, concluding thoughts for us tonight, okay? So why am I trying to say all this? Why, why am I even trying to get you to entertain the idea that, you're, that our focus as Western Christians is on the wrong end goal? Okay. That our focus shouldn't be on our, our going to heaven one day and being with Jesus in heaven, but rather that our focus should be on our destination, which is this new heaven and new earth in immortal bodies, glorified like that unto Jesus in the presence of Jesus. Why, why am I trying to do that? Um, well, I'm trying to do it because I really think that's the focus of the New Testament. I, I mean, it's so funny when you begin to, when you begin to have some of the things happen to you, which happened to me, and, and your focus sort of changes, and you read your Bible, it's, it's like you begin to see the things that you're seeing. You see them everywhere, right? I see conditionalism everywhere in my Bible now. I'm not, I ain't looking for it, but just when I read, that's what I see now. And so some of these things that, that, that the focus of the New Testament Christian is not on heaven, but on the heavens and earth being recreated and God being king and us being glorified in that, man, that's what I see all the time in the text now. And so uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because this has so affected my life. And I want to tell you how it's affected my life. And I really, you know, if, if, if any of this, if, if 
any of this sounds like stuff you want to pursue and you want to study a little bit more, if you were to become convinced of some of this stuff, I would, I, I think the, the, the point I'm trying to make tonight that the focus of the New Testament Christian and the focus of our New Testaments is the new heavens and new earth and our resurrection from the dead and our relationship with God and a glorified new heavens and new earth with no sin. I, I, I do believe that's the focus. So, so here are some things that have changed and how it's affected my, my life, okay? And, um, and I'm, I'm maybe it'll do some of that for you as well. So, number one, um, my, my, this has affected my hope. It's affected my hope. And uh, my hope, my expectations, my thoughts are, are almost continuously now towards the day that God's going to raise me from the dead. I mean, that has become my, my hope. And I, I don't know, um, you know, the, the hope of going to heaven and, and being, being with God in his presence. I mean, uh, that, that's, that was always my mindset. It's always what I was going to thought. But, but I'm telling you, what's happened to me is, man, my heart is so filled with hope for, for this thing that God's promised that he is going to raise me from the dead and give me my life back. And I'm going to see him. And I tell you, I just have this... I just have this hope of being able to hug Jesus. Now, you know the song I can only imagine uh, when you know the movie that just came out, you know, and maybe when we see the when we see God Himself who's taken on our humanity, you know, maybe I won't feel that way. Maybe I won't feel like I have the right to to touch Jesus and hug Jesus and you know, I, y'all probably all know, I, I love to give hugs. I'm, I'm, I'm a hugger. I just, man, I think it speaks of our affection one for another. And, uh, but I, I just, I have such hope. In, and it's just affected my life in such a positive way. And the second thing, it's affected my prayers. Uh, my prayers have become, uh, to, they, they are focused on, on all that God's got planned for us with anticipation. I mean, when I'm praying, I'm, I'm always praying and thanking God and, and, and just praying, praying the vision of the new heavens and new earth that, that, that God's given us in the Bible. And it just, it comes out in my prayers. And uh, I thank God for the, the gift of immortality, the anticipation and, the, and with gratefulness. And it, it has affected my prayer life in a big way. And then the third thing is my joy. And I can't really explain this. Um, I can't really explain this, but I have this new, and, and I think in my own heart, and I, I, I try to explain it to Anne, and I really can't, or my brother, but, but I just have this profound joy that's, that's changed inside of me because of some of these perspectives that, that I now believe the, the, that God is showing me in His Scripture. And this focus on what God's going to do in the future has just brought me profound spiritual joy. So um, I don't know how well I did at communicating this idea that our focus shouldn't be on the intermediate heaven, but our focus should be on the new heavens and new earth. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www dot baconscastle dot com